the privilege it is to just worship together in your presence. We just ask that you be present with us tangibly today. We just thank you for that increased revelation of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, God is so good. I am just excited because, as, as some of you know, if you've been here, or if you're here last week in particular, um, I started a new series. And I didn't know what to call this series, and I just felt to call it the Spirit Series. <laughs> because we're going to be talking about essentially the Holy Spirit and the significance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you guys remember, the theme of 2017 is the presence-driven life. And, you know, many of us might not know this, but the presence of God is an essential aspect of our faith. So it's not just some uh, catchy, you know, phrase that we're using, a presence-driven life. This is actually what we're supposed to do as Christians, is live a presence-driven life. And I'm going to actually show that to you biblically today, because I think sometimes that idea gets lost. But in all honesty, from beginning to end, the continuity of the Bible, the one thing is the presence of God from beginning to end. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But I wanted to start today at the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2. For those of you who don't know, this is the day of Pentecost how do you remember what happened? They were in the upper room. Then the sound of a mighty rushing wind came, and it was wild from heaven. Tongues of fire came, rested upon them. They started speaking in tongues. <laughs> and then people actually thought they were drunk. You know, they're, they're accusing, they're like, these guys are drunk because they looked so funny. I mean, when the presence of God comes, sometimes it looks funny. You look like you're intoxicated. But Peter gets up and says, actually, guys, they're not drunk like you think. This is only nine in the morning. What's happening here is this is fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet Joel when he said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men have visions. Even my maidservants and my men servants, I'll pour out my spirit upon. And, and Peter's like, you know that promise that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years? That's what's happening. That's what this is. Okay? And that's the birth of the church. If you think about it, that's really interesting, isn't it? The thing that happened when the church was birthed was the Holy Spirit came. Why is that? I'm going to talk all about that today. Now, one thing I wanted to do is start off, and I'm, I'm going to be elaborating on some of this in the future, but I wanted to mention that the experience of the Spirit meant lots of things, but two things in particular I want to talk about today is that God had ushered in the new covenant and, and this is what I'm mostly emphasizing, is that God had renewed the lost presence of God to his people. The lost presence of God. Now, I'm going to get into that, but before I do, I just want to mention that this idea of the new covenant by the Spirit 
was anticipated all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. If you guys don't know this, this is like the fifth book in the Bible, way at the beginning. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he promises Israel. In fact, it's a prophetic word. It's really interesting. He's saying, you guys are going to fail this covenant. You're going to go into exile. Then when you return from exile, then what I'm going to do is circumcise your heart. This is, so this is what he actually says. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. Now, Jeremiah picks this up later. This is later in the Old Testament. He picks up this promise and he actually starts, he calls it the new covenant. This is the first time it says the new covenant in the Old Testament. It says, this is just a couple verses. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to the one, know the Lord, because they will all know me. It's right. They're all going to know me personally. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll give, forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Then this same promise is picked up shortly thereafter in Ezekiel, in chapter 36 and 37. Now, this is important, and we're going to talk about this more in the future, but you remember what I just said about Acts chapter 2. Ezekiel expressly links this promise of a new covenant with the circumcised heart and the work of the Spirit of God, whom he's going to put in you. Okay, and that becomes really crucial. We'll get to that some other time. But this is what he says. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And you'll see when I go over this in the future, Paul alludes to these verses over and over again. His understanding of the new covenant is the new covenant of the spirit. But what I want to talk more about today is the significance of this prophecy that Ezekiel gives. You have to understand Ezekiel is actually prophesying to Israel when they are in captivity to Babylon. Okay, so they were, they were super devastated. Okay, the fall of Jerusalem happened and then eventually the destruction of the temple. And that's devastating. You can't even fathom how devastating that is. Why? Above everything else, the fulfillment of the covenant of this promised Holy Spirit marked the return of something that Israel had longed for and lost. And what is that? The lost presence of God. The destruction of the temple was so devastating because that meant the presence of God left. And that changed everything. And that's what I want to talk about today. The significance of that. The story, this is throughout the restoration of the lost presence of God. Because what you're going to see is this is throughout the whole Bible. This is the thing that connects the beginning to the end. The entire Christian Bible. The theme of the presence of God is crucial to both the Old and the New Testament. Okay, and if you think about it, it serves to bookend the Bible. It starts off in Genesis 2 and 3 where God creates Adam and Eve. And what distinguishes them? They have fellowship in the presence of God, unhindered. 
Okay, he created them for his own pleasure. He walked with Adam in the garden. Personally, the presence of God. They lived in his presence unhindered. Okay, so that's the first three chapters of the Bible. Think about the last three chapters of the Bible. You could read the first three chapters and the last three chapters and it makes a complete story. (laughs) It concludes with this amazing picture of a renewed heaven and earth and the renewal of Eden. And this is in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, all the way through 22, verse 5. In fact, I recommend you read that and meditate on it. It's really interesting and encouraging, talking about heaven coming. Especially Revelation 22, 1 through 5, the restoration of Eden. But look at what John says in Revelation 21, 2. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Back in his presence. That's what he redeemed us for. That fellowship that we once had with him in the garden before sin entered. The presence of God. The people of Israel understood themselves to be the people of the divine presence. And that is the key. That is the one thing that defining characteristic of the people of God. The children of Israel. The people among whom the eternal God had chosen to dwell on planet earth. And that's why the destruction of the temple is so devastating. Okay, so now this is what I want to talk a little bit about today. The most prominent way that God's presence is experienced in the Old Testament is in the tabernacle first and then in the temple. And here's the story. So what happened is Adam and you guys know, so the the people of the presence, what happened? Adam and Eve enjoyed this amazing fellowship with God in the presence of God. And then what happened is they sin. You guys know the story probably. They sin, and what happened? They get kicked out of the garden, and they're driven. They're banished from the presence of God. Right? That's devastating. Now, what's interesting, if you fast forward then to the book of Exodus, the heart of the book of Exodus is the renewing of God's presence on earth through a slave people whom he's redeemed. That's the key, the structural key of the entire book of Exodus. Okay, so the returning of God's presence, like I said, is the structural key of the book of Exodus, which culminates at the end of Exodus with God's glory descending on the tabernacle. Okay, that's like the crescendo. That's the point of Exodus, is the return of the presence of God among the slave people whom he's redeemed. This motif, the presence of God, is the, in the incident of the burning bush in Exodus 3 where God, the living God, shows himself present to Moses. And a lot of you know this story. Right? Moses is walking. God reveals himself. He's present to Moses. His presence is in the form of a burning bush. And he says, right, take off your shoes for where you're standing is holy ground. So Moses is in his presence. And then a few, a while later, fast forwarding to chapter 19, what happens in the middle of Exodus is the children of Israel, Israel, after they escape from uh, uh, Egypt and everything, arrive at the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And they come to the place of God's dwelling. How many of you have ever read this chapter or heard of it? 
lightnings and thunder and clouds, and it's just crazy. The earth is trembling. The presence of God and the millions of Israelites are there seeing this happen. And Moses climbs up into God's presence and God speaks to him. He's the only one who's allowed to at this point. And what God wants to do is make a covenant with this people. Okay? And what they, they do is they agree to this covenant. They say, we will do whatever you say. Because God says, I want to make you my people. And they say, yes, Lord, we will do whatever it takes. Okay? So then what happens is God makes it clear when they agreed that he's going to move from Mount Sinai and dwell among them personally by means of a tabernacle. So what happens is after they ratify the covenant and say, yes, Lord, we'll do whatever you say, chapters 20 through 24, God gives them the covenant. <laughs> okay? And then what's interesting is in chapter 24 to 31, God goes into excruciating detail about this tabernacle. You guys know what I'm talking about? This tabernacle. Why does he go into so much detail about this tabernacle? Anybody? What's the big deal about this tabernacle? What'd you say? It's in heaven? Is that what you said? The significance is that God is going to leave Mount Sinai and he's going to dwell among his people. And he's going to make them a people of his presence. That's the whole point. He's going to move his presence from Sinai and dwell among the midst of his people and make him his people among all the peoples of the earth. And that's the defining characteristic. They're going to be a people of the presence of God and it's a big deal. So he goes into this excruciating detail about this tabernacle. And if you don't believe me, go, for, go ahead and read Exodus. <laughs> what happens is in between the instructions that I just talked about, and he goes on for chapters, and the construction, something horrible happens. Does anyone know what it is? Chapter 32. They make a golden calf... And they worship it. Can you fathom that? You're at Mount Sinai. <laughs> Lightning and thunder and clouds and craziness and trumpets. And Moses went there for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time is when he gave him the covenant and the instructions. And they have the audacity to go and make a golden calf and worship it as Yahweh. That's not good, is it? Because part of the covenant was you shouldn't go to other gods. Idolatry is a big deal. Okay? So, so, of course, this makes God pretty mad. And he's so mad, he's like, look, Moses, you lead your people, your people now, into the promised land. My presence is not going with you. That's the, the right? The, the, I'm no longer going. Because if I go... I'm going to destroy this people who did this thing that was so crazy. And you know what Moses does? Shameless audacity. <laughs> he has the audacity to intercede and say, God, if your presence, notice this is the, the one thing. This is the heart of the book of Exodus. 
if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. Why? He says, how will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people of the face of the earth? Your presence. That's it. Your presence. I don't even want the stinking promised land if you're not coming. That angel you're going to send won't do. You got to be there with us or don't send us at all. Look what God says. He was pleased by this shameless audacity. Go figure. If you are here last week, you'd know what I'm talking about. I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name, intimacy. I, my presence will go with you, Moses. And then Moses doesn't stop there. He says, hey, Lord, show me your glory. <laughs> and you guys know what happens next. God reveals his glory to him and reveals his character in chapter 34. I'm Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's an amazing scene. So then what happens is the construction of that tabernacle goes through. They go through with it. From all the way to end, the end of chapter 40 is them building that tabernacle. With the descent, and this is how the book ends. With the descent of God's glory that filled that tabernacle. So this is Exodus 40, 34 to 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He repeats it twice. And this is how it ends in verse 36 to 38. In all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. Okay. Now, from this point on in the Bible, they can leave Sinai because now they're the people of the presence. God himself is present among them. Yahweh, their God, dwells in their midst. The cloud and the fire is evidence that God is dwelling there. Now, this is an important point that I'll make again in the future because it's so important that the Holy Spirit is understood as the presence of God. There's an explicit connection, especially in the prophetic literature. They actually connected the presence of God with the Holy Spirit, okay? So I'm going to show you this. In Isaiah 63, 9 through 4, okay, remember, he's equating that presence and exodus to the Holy Spirit. When Isaiah is repeating this narrative, now he's talking about and giving a summary of what happened, and he's reflecting back on it. This is what he says. Verse 9, in their distress, it was no, no envoy or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them and lifted them up and carried them of the, all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Paul? Right? This is great, because Paul understands it this way too in Ephesians 4.30. So he turned and became their enemy and himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where, he, uh, where is he who, oh, question. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who his Holy Spirit set his Holy Spirit among them? He sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand who divided the waters before them to gain himself everlasting renown. 
who led them through the depths like a horse in the open country. They did not stumble like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh. This is how you guided your people, by the spirit, right? To make yourself a glorious name. This is so important. We're talking about the presence of God now, and this understanding of this connection between the presence and the Spirit is so crucial. It influences Paul and the New Testament writers. So the cloud and fire is now interpreted by Isaiah as the presence of the Spirit. Presence-driven life. He understands that the presence in the narrative of Exodus as the Spirit of Yahweh being with the people. The temple of his presence, okay? So we just talked about the tabernacle, now the temple, because this becomes important, and you'll see why. So just to recap, Exodus is about two things. It's about God's deliverance of Israel, but not only that, it's about his deliverance of Israel so that he might create a people among whom he himself will dwell, where his presence will be in their midst. That's the whole point. The purpose of the rescue from Egypt is to create a people for his name among whom he will dwell personally. Okay, so then you come to Deuteronomy. This is the fifth book in the Bible. And they're promised by God that he's gonna, there's going to be a place where the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 12, 11. So they're led by the presence of God, symbolized by the pillar of cloud and fire, right? And you guys know the story around the desert, and then they go in the promised land. But finally, this promise in Deuteronomy that he's going to have a place where he's going to dwell is chosen, which is Jerusalem. Okay? And Solomon builds this temple, and the exact same thing that happened in Exodus 40:35 happens again at the construction of this temple. The exact same thing. The exact same language he uses. Why? Because they're the people of the presence. And God chose that dwelling place where he's going to have his name. This is just one of the verses I like this. 1 Kings 8:11. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The same language as Exodus 40.35. They couldn't even stand a minister. So, Jerusalem and the temple are regularly described as the place where Yahweh the Lord chose for his name to dwell. And the temple, the place of God's dwelling, became the focal point of Israel's existence in the promised land. So Israel's identity, their entire identity, is a people of the presence. That's their identity. Okay? And this is very important. I, wanna, I can't emphasize this point enough. More than the law, even more than the law, or any other identity marker that Israel experienced, like the sacrificial system, circumcision, food laws, Sabbath, even more important than those things, it was God's presence with Israel that distinguished him, them as his people. The presence, that's it. The law was given as evidence that they lived as his people. But more than anything else, that was their identity as the people of the presence of God. The point 
is that they were to be a people of his name among whom he dwelt. A people for his name. Because God chose to have his presence concentrate in the temple in Jerusalem, first the tabernacle and then the temple, became the primary symbols of God's presence among his people. And that's the significance of the temple. So even though... Okay. So even though the temple also served as a place for sacrifices, the Old Testament people of God saw it especially as a place of prayer and of knowing God's presence with them. Now, this comes out over and over again in their hymn book, which is the Psalms, the book of Psalms. They aren't longing for Jerusalem or the temple to go make sacrifices. They're longing to go to Jerusalem because Yahweh dwells there. Yahweh, the God of Israel, his presence is there. And that's why they long for the temple in Jerusalem. And I just have some references up there if you want to look into this. But my personal favorite is Psalm 27, 4. It says, David, this one thing I ask of the Lord, this only thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The presence of God. That's the only thing. That's the one thing he longed for. Now, the lost presence of God. I hope this gives you an idea of why this was so tragic. Okay? Because we can't really fathom it unless we understand that was their identity. The great tragedy of Israel's fallen exile to Babylon was the lost presence of God. Okay? It was their failure that caused them to lose that presence. And this is what makes the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple so devastating to them. Because if they're the people of the presence and the presence goes, who are they then? This is their identity. God no longer dwells in their midst. Okay? This temple was destroyed. They lost their meaning and their identity. Because of that, they're a people of the presence. And the place where God's chosen to dwell is now gone. And the people were no longer distinguished by the presence of the Lord in their midst. (laughs) It's devastating. They didn't even think this was possible. They did not think the destruction of the temple was possible. That's why they didn't even believe Jeremiah. Jeremiah's like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. They're like, no, it's not. That's not going to happen. The temple's not, because that's where God dwells. And then it happened. So, the poignancy of all this finds its ultimate expression in Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. In fact, the whole of Ezekiel's prophecy is, is essentially about the loss of the presence of God and the restoration of the presence of God. That's what the book's about. Okay, so what happens is Ezekiel, he's 25 years old, and he was going to be a priest. And he gets taken in the first wave of captives, he gets taken into captivity in Babylon with Jehoiakim. 25. Now he's in captive in Babylon. Exactly five years after he was taken into captivity, when he was 30, and at that time, that's when priests were of age. Exactly the time he was going to be a priest, he has a vision of the Lord. And the spirit of, the God, of God takes him from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he says, look what's happening in my temple. And he takes him on a tour. And he sees the most 
ugly things. Priests in the temple of Yahweh are scribing reptiles and crawly things that represent Babylonian deities. He sees women in the north gate mourning for the god Tammuz, a Babylonian goddess. He sees elders with their backs to the temple facing the sun as it rises, worshiping the sun. And in the midst of this, God says, Ezekiel 8, 6, Son of man, do you see what, what they're doing? <laughs> the utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here. Reminiscent of the golden calf, isn't it? Idolatry. He says, things that will drive me from my sanctuary. These things that are happening. I'm gone. And then in chapter 10, Ezekiel is taken and he watches this happen. He watches the presence of God depart from the sanctuary, from the inner sanctuary to the outer sanctuary, and then depart from the temple. Devastating. Now, if this isn't enough to end somebody, right? He watches this happen. Ezekiel is a man of faith. And even though this is devastating, he also prophesies that the great prophetic hope of the restoration of the temple and the return of the presence of God, the new covenant of the Spirit. You guys remember Ezekiel 36. I told you about that. And remember I said he's prophesying to a captive people. This is after the destruction of the temple happened. He says, I'm making a new covenant, my spirit I'm going to put in you. But the whole end of the book, from especially chapter 40 to the end, is the reconstruction of the temple. Especially in 43, chapter 43, the glory of the Lord is seen to return to the temple, the presence of God. The presence of God is coming back. This gives them that hope. Okay, he left, but he's coming back. Now, this explains the poignancy of Haggai and Zechariah. What I mean is the sadness, they, the disappointment they have, if you know the story. And I've talked about this before. When they construct the second temple, they were so bummed out. It was a huge disappointment. In fact, you read Haggai 2.3. He says, do you remember the temple, the former glory? Isn't this to you like nothing? This temple is like nothing. Why? Because the glory wasn't even there. The glory wasn't even there. And so great gloom and disappointment settled upon the children of Israel. And if you remember, this became known as what? The time of the quenched spirit. Because why? The presence left. The presence of God left no more prophetic voice in the land. No more prophets. So from Malachi to John the Baptist, zero books of prophecy in our Bible. Because there was no longer a prophetic voice because the Spirit left. And if you want to hear more on this, I gave essentially a whole sermon on that. The time of the quenched Spirit. The intertestamental period. Because it's so significant. Talking about the new covenant in Acts 2 and what they were expecting. That prophecy I quoted earlier from Acts chapter 2, Joel's prophecy. 
The last days I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. That was the promise. The Holy Spirit's coming back. The presence of God is coming back. So they're waiting and longing for the kingdom of God, the latter days to come because the spirit of, and presence of God left. Devastating. But there's good news. The return of the presence of God. And this is why the Holy Spirit is so significant in the new covenant. This is the one demarcation. The one thing they were expecting. The present, the return of the presence of God to his people. The Holy Spirit. Okay? And so you'll remember, John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. One greater than I is coming. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit's coming back. He's even in our midst. So then Jesus Christ walks on the scene. What happens? Gets baptized by John in the what? Holy Spirit comes. So, so important. The Holy Spirit comes back. The presence of God they were waiting for came back on Jesus Christ. Okay? So related to this whole presence of God motif, this loss of the presence, was this theme of this messianic king who's going to be an anointed, he's going to be anointed by the Spirit of God to deliver his people. And you guys, the prophecies, Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me, for he's anointed me. And you guys know the rest. To deliver the captives, set the captives free, preach good news to the poor. Jesus himself quotes that in Luke 4 and says, I'm the guy. I'm fulfilling these prophecies about the Messiah who's going to be an ultimate man of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's coming back on him. So, in Christ himself, all these things come together. Making it clear that the presence of God has now returned among his people. And look at it. Just think about Matthew 1. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus Christ, God is back. But think about, this is just some things. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. And here's the scriptures if you don't know, if you want to look this up. He was empowered to do ministry by the Spirit. He spoke the word of God by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit. From beginning to end, the Holy Spirit marked his life. Look at this, Acts 10, 38, when Peter's preaching, this is what he says about Jesus. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? The Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because what? God was with him. God was with him. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit was with him. Now you go to the end of Jesus' life, no, actually, you remember, Matthew, he, Jesus is the eternal son. And he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. The ultimate man of the spirit. The presence of God is on me. And then at the end of his life, he insists that when he goes, he's going to send the spirit to take his place and continue his work. The gift of the spirit, Right? Going back to Acts 2. What does he say? Wait in Jerusalem so that the gift of my Father will come. The Holy Spirit. Presence is coming back. Look at in John 16, 7. He says, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Think about that. How many of you would like to hang out with Jesus in the flesh? And yet he's saying, it's actually better that I go. 
figure. Why? Because unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus Christ is saying it's actually better that he left so that he could send the Holy Spirit. You know what a privilege it is that we have the presence of God. It is just unfathomable. And yet it's so easy to take for granted. But Jesus is saying it's better that the Holy Spirit is with you than I am with you. It's good that I go. So, the church, the church, why in Acts chapter 2 did the Holy, was the birth of the church, why was the Holy Spirit the one thing that made this significant? Because the church is called to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is our destiny That's what defines us as the people of God. We are now the people of the presence. We are now the people of the presence through Christ. We are called to be the temple. And remember, that's why the temple was so significant. In Jerusalem, the temple symbolized the presence of God because that's where he dwelt. Then the Holy Spirit comes back, Acts 2. That's the defining characteristic of the church. Okay, so just think about this. What Paul came to realize in New Testament writers is that, oh, back one, the coming of the Spirit is the renewing of the presence of Yahweh. The temple imagery is especially significant in this regard. The temple is now the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not the building, the people. He dwells in our midst. The place of God's presence. And here's some scriptures just to show you this. And Someday I'll go in more detail on this because it's so important. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Paul says to them, Don't you know that you yourselves, the church in Corinth, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. This is one of the most intense scriptures in the entire New Testament. He's saying God's temple is so sacred that if somebody creates, destroys the temple, he's talking about divisions. You read Corinthians, he's talking about, hey, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. There's all these divisions. And he's like, you know what? If you're a catalyst to dividing the church, God's going to destroy you. God is really into the local church. As a people, not a building. As a people. We're the people of the presence. In Corinth, there was 26, 26 pagan temples and idols. And God is saying, you, church in Corinth, are that temple of God. He doesn't have a temple other than you. You're the temple of God in this city. And you better not destroy it or else... One of the most intense warnings in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. A people of the presence. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 21 and 22. 
In him, the whole building's joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the, in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which, which God lives by his spirit. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Paul uses to, right, to give them, dig, you guys realize who you are? You're God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in your midst. You guys are fighting over these silly things, your definition of wisdom and leaders and all this worldly stuff when you're the temple of God, the people. It's crucial that we realize that. And that's what we're called to be as a church, the dwelling place of God, the people of his presence. Okay, so in the New Testament, there is a very explicit equating with the now present of the Spirit, with the same Holy Spirit who led Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. We went over that. And who was present among them in the tabernacle first. We went over that in Exodus 40. And then in the temple, Solomon's temple. That they equate that same presence with the Holy Spirit. And I gave you Isaiah 63. You'll see that Paul equates that as well. And it was that presence that was lost in the exile, remember the lost presence of God, and was now restored in the first coming of Christ and then in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the return of the presence of God. Acts 2 is the return, the renewal of God's presence. And we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't get much better than that. This is the main calling and purpose as the people of God. The people of his presence. It's the one thing that marks us. The one defining characteristic of whether you're a Christian or not is whether you have the Holy Spirit, scripturally speaking. And I'll teach on that in another time. But we're to be a people of his presence, a temple where God himself dwells by his spirit. And so then I ask the question, what would church look like if our main priority and goal was to attract the Holy Spirit rather than just attracting people? What would the church look like? Because that's what we're called to be, a temple of his presence. And that's a question I want us to ask. What would church look like? Because that's what we are, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If our main goal was to attract the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, I tell you, if, that, if we make that our priority, then a lot of people will come. <laughs> Just look at Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people get saved in one day when the Holy Spirit comes like that. Remember what I taught last week. Jesus teaching on prayer with Luke 11, 1 through 13. Verse 13, he says, If you are, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is provoking us in his teaching on prayer, which tells me he wants us to pray for that all the time, right? We need to be praying for more of the Holy Spirit. And he promises God will answer that. He promises us God will answer. And I want to exhort us as a church, not only as a church, but as individuals, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that? Holy Spirit, come. God, come and manifest yourself, your presence, your tangible presence in this place. Look at Toronto. I mean, we're a campus. We were a campus. We're a 
church plant of Toronto, God came. His presence came tangibly, intensely. Crazy things happened and the world came. It was a church of 120. And then it exploded in an international revival that impacted millions. The nations came. Come, Holy Spirit. That's, that's who we're called to be. The ultimate dignity is that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. We just ask you to reign on us. We thank you, God, that you restored your tangible, experiential presence in our midst. And that we have the privilege of hosting your presence, of being a temple where you dwell. Holy Spirit, come. We thank you that you promise that if we ask, that it'll be given. That we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be open. So we just ask that you would come, Holy Spirit. Manifest yourself upon us. That we would learn what it is to be a church who our priority is to be a people of your presence. Like what we're called to be. Help us to show the world what heaven's like through your presence. A people among whom you dwell. Jesus, we thank you that you made this possible through your death and resurrection. We just ask that we live the life of the Spirit here and now. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Be a people who host your Spirit. That you would be so manifest upon each and every one of us in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our corporate lives, that we'd be a people who are known in Ottawa as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, if you would like, uh, how about this? If you want, I'd like us just to pray for each other. Now, if you gotta go, we just release you to go. There's no pressure to stay. But I, I would just like us, because Jesus, right, I just feel so passionate about this, that Jesus says that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And we just need to ask him. So if you want prayer for more of the Holy Spirit, this is for you. <laughs> I would like us just to pray for each other, okay? And so what I'm going to get you to do, if you want, and like I said, no pressure. If you got to go, that's totally cool. Is what I'll do is get those of you who are just like, yeah, I really want to experience more of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that's all of us, hopefully. But, right, if this message in particular spoke to you and you're like, you know, I just, I just need that more of the Holy Spirit. I want to get us to gather around each other and we can pray for each other for more of the Holy Spirit, believing God that he's going to answer. Because you know what? Jesus says that, and then Paul picks this up. Every one, almost every one of his apostolic prayers, he starts by praying for the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.9, Ephesians 1.14, Ephesians 3.16. He starts his prayers with the Holy Spirit. So that's how we, that tells me we should start our prayers like that, right? If Jesus tells it to you, the Paul prays that like that. Okay, so now... We're just going to pray for each other. I'll put on some music. Just be low-key about it. Now, if you encounter God, in awesome. If you don't, we'll just believe, right? Ask, seek, knock, that you be persistent about it. 
And then, but if you got to go, we bless you. We also have hospitality. So if you want to, after you get prayer, or if you don't uh, uh, want to stay for that, just in to your left, we have coffee, we have snacks. Feel free to stay around, hang out, fellowship. But for the rest of us who want to stay for this, let's just, um, our neighbors, what I'll get you to do is, if, if this really spoke to you and you want someone to pray for you, just raise your hand, and then we'll get the prayer team and those around to pray for you. Lay hands, Holy Spirit, come. That simple. Just whatever the Lord puts on your heart to pray, okay? So let's do that. We'll gather in twos and threes. And then the rest of us, if you want, and the rest of us, we just bless you to go. Feel free again to stay fellowship. And I just, the prayer team, I just encourage you to walk around and pray for people who are receiving prayer, okay? But God bless you guys. Have an amazing week. And Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. (laughs)